The first moment I saw India, I knew this was it. And the rest of my time there was discovering how inexpressibly wonderful it was. One morning, about three weeks after my arrival, someone knocked on my door a little while after dawn. I opened it to find a student from Swami Vidyananda's high school. Would you like to meet a saint, he asked. What a wondrous place I'd come to, where saints could be met for the asking. A year or so later, back in America, I met a young man from central India. When I asked him if he had met any of the renowned saints of India, he responded, No. You see, there were three saints living in my hometown, and I spent much time with them. I understood. Anyhow, I certainly would like to meet a saint. I had met three already in as many weeks, and I said so. As soon as I find some bicycles, we can leave, the boy told me, as he headed for the village. Meanwhile, I went back in the room to sit and revel in being in India. It was not long until two bicycles appeared at my door. One was for me and the other for two boys who were to be my guides. So off we set, and I learned what a misery it was to ride on a bicycle whose front wheel was out of alignment but I also learned how to compensate for it. So as we rolled through a trackless plain, I learned who we were going to meet. His name was Swami Krishnananda, and he was a disciple of Sri Masharada Devi, who was worshiped by many as an incarnation of the Divine Mother. My anticipation at hearing about her from someone who had lived with her soared. Every so often we encountered solitary walkers who were asked the way to Krishnanagar, the city of Krishna. They all pointed toward the horizon and we headed there. Finally, we came to a very small village. On one side was Swami Krishnananda's ashram, consisting of a few huts. We came through the gate and walked toward a small building directly in front of us. On its tiny veranda was a wooden platform bed and lying on it was a very old man who was also very much alive. And now I have to backtrack and give you some background that will be relevant later in my account. On the way to India, when I landed in Tokyo, I began getting what I thought was a sore throat. It kept getting worse, and the doctor who ran the free medical dispensary at the Anandamai Ashram in Ranchi examined me and told me I had an ulcer in my throat. Nothing helped it, and by the time I was cycling over the plains to meet the saint, I was running a mild temperature, and every time I swallowed, I wanted to scream. The pain was so terrible. Even when I was not swallowing, pains were shooting up the right side of my head from my throat. But I was in India, so I was content. We bowed before Swami Krishnananda, and he told the boys in Bengali, I will not speak with him, but I want him to sit where I can look at him. There went my hope for talk about Sri Ma. But a saint was going to watch me. I had no idea what he expected to see. I was quite content to sit for an hour or more, just looking in the Swami's eyes. He then asked one of the monks to take the three of us on a tour of the ashram. 
There was very little to see, and all of it very simple, but heaven was in the air. We, we returned to Christianology, bowed, and said our farewells. All the way out to the gate, and as we got onto the bikes, he never stopped looking at me. When we were out of sight of the village, I felt the need to swallow and braced for the ordeal. Then I swallowed and felt no pain at all. I swallowed some more. And still, no pain. Had Swami Krishnananda cured my ulcer just by his look? Every so often on the way back to Lakhanpur, I would swallow very hard to test if I was healed. And in that way prove that doubt or disbelief have nothing to do with a miracle. Our tiny minds cannot block or reverse the will of God expressed through one of his saints. Back at the ashram, I asked someone to look at my throat. No ulcer, gone, but not forgotten. So I'm telling you about it now. I never saw Swami Krishnananda again, but I did learn that he had a master's degree in English literature. So evidently his silence was necessary for him to heal me. One of the most remarkable people I became acquainted with in India was Sri Durga Singh, the Raja of Solan, a kingdom in north-central India. The Raja was well known to the devotees of Anandamai Ma as Yogi Bhai, which means Brother Yogi. A wise and devoted ruler and associate of Mahatma Gandhi, Yogi Bhai had always lived a simple and spiritual life, though in a palace. When he was young, he met and became associated with Sri Ma Anandamai. Some of the earliest photographs of Ma were made in his palace at his request. I had read of Yogi Bhai before I met him during my second trip to India, in 1968 to 69. Devotees of Ma always spoke of him with equal affection and respect. So meeting him at the end of November in 1968 was a real privilege and pleasure. Yogi Bai had relinquished his kingdom after independence, having ruled in an exemplary manner for 20 years. He always dressed in normal Indian style in the simplest and most humble manner. As any true and worthy king, he needed no insignia to proclaim his nobility. And as his title, Yogi Bhai, indicated, he was foremost a yogi. In all my subsequent visits, I was able to speak with him. He was a friend and advocate of our ashram in America. Yogi Bhai was teaching his two sons to follow the spiritual path and ideals of Mother Anandamai and Gandhiji. They were totally unaffected, humble, and dignified, dressed like their father in homespun cotton clothing. I well remember walking with the three of them along Rajpur Road in Dehradun to the Anandamai Ashram. Yogi Bhai was questioning me in detail about myself and my background, just as others had done during my first Indian pilgrimage. He put some very serious questions to me, and I understood that I was being carefully examined. Then, to my surprise, he asked his son in Pahari, the local dialect of Himachal Pradesh, what they thought of me, not realizing that I can understand. The older one, who seemed 13 or 14, 
was not as diplomatic and answered in English, very nice. I couldn't help but laugh that the Raj's cover was blown, and we all laughed together. There are no particular incidents through the years that stand out in my mind. All our encounters were natural, open, and friendly, like Yogi Bai himself. The news that Yogi Bai had left his body saddened me, of course, because I had come to respect him so very much. But I knew that for him death was a portal to his real kingdom, which no elements of earth could affect, much less take from him. And that was the kingdom he had always preferred anyway. But something happened that I want to tell you, even though some might doubt its accuracy. The year that Yogi Bai left this world, the annual spiritual conference, the Samyan Sapta, was held in Brindaban, the childhood home of Sri Krishna. Just across the street from the Anandamai Ashram was the ashram of Swami Sharanananda, a well-known saint of Brindaban and a longtime friend of Anandamai Ma. There was a kind of arched gateway at the entrance to the ashram property, very high and a few feet thick. There was no wall, just the gateway standing there in an open area. The ashram building itself was actually further on and out of sight. I was standing across the main road, 10 or, oh, 10 or so feet to the left side of the Anandamai Ashram gate, waiting for some friends, when suddenly Yogi Bai came walking down the ashram path. He was dressed, as always, in a blue coat and a white dhoti with a brown knit cap on his head, walking with a stout cane that he had been using the last two or three years. There was no mistaking him. Yogi Bai always walked with a cane and a cross between limping and swaying. I never saw anyone else walk that way. But I just could not believe it. Reaching the road, he turned to his left and walked over to the arch gateway and into it and never came out the other side, which was completely open to my sight. I had been preparing to run after him, but I realized that there would be no one there. Why did I see him in this way? I really have no explanation, but I am grateful that I did. There is no doubt in my mind that Yogi Bai demonstrated his immortality to me, and I hope that he was indicating that he would not forget me. I have not forgotten him, and I hope you will not either. Now I want to tell you about Neem Kroli Baba. In a way, it's strange, or it may seem strange, that I'm going to talk to him about. I'm going to talk to you about him, because I don't have any stories about him personally, but I did see him, and since it was one of the most memorable events of my life, I want to add my voice to those who speak of his greatness. If you do not know about his life, please read some of the books about him. They are great inspiration. I was in Brindaban with some of the members of our ashram for the Samyan Sapta with Anandamai Ma. After a few days, quite a number of Americans and Europeans began showing up for Ma's darshan, which was a sign that Neem Kroli Baba must be in town. We knew where his ashram was, so one morning we went to see him, and that was all we did, see. I have no idea why, but for decades the police in that area 
have been paranoid about American and European tourists and really make a nuisance of themselves. A few months before my first trip to India, one of my close friends went to travel with Ma Anandamai, and every single day she was in Brindaban, officious fools came and pestered her, acting as though she was a spy or a mad bomber. Over the years, I heard about these antics, though I never experienced any myself. But these same people apparently had decided after so many years that Anandamai Ma's devotees were not spies, and had shifted their suspicion to the devotees of Neem Kuroli Baba. As a consequence, when we got to the ashram, we found the gate was locked. A man who saw us came and explained that the police had been especially troublesome to all foreigners, so Neem Kuroli Baba had asked them to all leave the district and wait until he went to one of his ashrams in a more sensible area. However, there sitting at some distance, was Neem Kuroli Baba all alone. So though outside the wall, we went opposite to where he was sitting and bowed to him, then got out our movie camera with a telephoto lens and took turns looking at him through it. For the one with the camera, it was like standing hardly a foot away from him. But the real benefit was how we felt all the time. Every one of us was filled with intense joy. It is no exaggeration to say that we were drunk with the bliss that poured from him. We stood there a long time, not wanting to leave the source of such a heavenly condition. Eventually we had to go, but the memory was permanently etched in our minds. Later it occurred to us that since no one was around, he was sitting there just for us to have his darshan, even if from a distance and through a lens. Finally, I want to tell you a little about someone that, because of his desire to always be anonymous, I just have to call the unnamed master. Everyone has a store of likes and dislikes, and I have to confess to you that one of my dislikes is the pretentious high and mighty type about which others say, he has a guru somewhere in the Himalayas, but he will not reveal his name or whereabouts. I really don't want to join their ranks in any degree, but the master I want to tell you about came from a line of masters who appeared to be immersed in the world but were really enlightened teachers whose disciples were sworn never to speak of them, not even after their death. The one I am writing about was even spoken of by the externally devout that lived around him as a disgrace to his Brahminical heritage and a completely westernized materialist. My meeting with him caused me to have a different opinion. One morning in meditation in America, suddenly a tremendous presence was there, both in my mind and outside me. For a while, my mind just had its mouth open and gaping. Then I got my courage together and mentally asked, Who are you? He told me who he was and where he lived. May I visit you in India? I asked. If you want to, was the reply. I had no further contact with him outwardly or inwardly. 
Early on in my next trip to India, I asked a friend who lived in the same town as the master if he knew him, not telling him why I asked. From his answer, it was evident that he had no inkling of the master's spiritual side, but he spoke of him with respect. He knew where the master worked and told me he would gladly take me there to meet him. Early the next morning, we were riding in my friend's car. As we neared a traffic circle, my friend said, there he is, right there, in that rickshaw opposite us. I jumped out of the car and saw the master weaving his way toward me on foot. He came up to me and took my hand. I'm very busy all day today, he said, but I can come to see you at the ashram this evening. That was it. He knew who I was and that I was staying at a local ashram. I agreed and that night had one of the most valued visits in my life. I was sitting in my room when he walked in and sat beside me and began speaking openly and familiarly with me about his spiritual lineage and the traditions of his ancestors because the whole line of gurus had been fathers and sons. For generations, a master of that family would have just one child, a male, and that child would be instructed early in yoga. On the death of his father, he would become the next guru in the line. They never had many disciples because their requirements could be met by very few. At one point in our conversation, the master laughed and said, Look at us. Here you are from the West wearing Garawa and being called by a Sanskrit name. Here am I sitting in a Western suit and tie, and being called Mr. by most people, who also disapprove of me and my irreligious ways. It was a very humbling thing to have such a great, yes, colossal master, sitting there speaking with me as though we were longtime friends. He told me many valuable things and helped me have a much clearer and vital perspective on many aspects of yoga and the requirements of both teacher and students. I never met him again physically, but we corresponded some, and I did send a very dear friend to see him and ask to learn from him. I had gotten his permission first to even tell her about his existence. He lived in a huge mansion that was more like a fortress, and when she approached the door, it opened, and he was standing there. Some others were with her, so as they went in, he quietly said, I can't talk with them here. Please come back in the evening. So she did. But I am sorry to say that though she could easily have met the traditional requirements of his lineage, she refused to do so and never saw him again. Confident that he knew exactly how the meeting would turn out, I felt sure that his agreeing to meet her was a gesture of kindness toward me. Actually, it is not impossible that I was the only one he ever revealed himself to that was not a disciple. The master has now left this world and his son is living in the ancestral home, silently and secretly guiding others to the infinite. May the blessing of all that line of masters be upon us.